I want to live in a world where everyone recognizes that something like a data privacy vault is one of the foundational sort of pieces of any architecture, just like you would have, mm -hmm. you know, an application database, a data warehouse and so forth. And, you know, I would love it if you're using Skyflow to do that. But even if you're not, this is something that just makes too much sense from a PII management standpoint, just like you use a secrets vault for managing your API keys and passwords. You should be, shouldn't be using essentially these, you know, pre-existing tools to try to manage something as complex as PII. Hey everyone, this is Sean Faulkner, Head of Marketing and Developer Relations at Skyflow, and this is the MongoDB Podcast. Welcome to the show. My name is Michael Lin, and this is the MongoDB Podcast. Today, we've got another exciting episode where we delve into the world of data privacy and security with our special guest, Sean Faulkner from Skyflow. In today's episode, Sean draws from his wealth of experience as a successful technologist and founder to take us on a journey through building a data privacy vault he explains the importance of protecting sensitive data and how Skyflow's polymorphic encryption and tokenization technologies ensure that data stays secure. You're going to discover how Skyflow tackles the challenges of data privacy in this age of generative AI and how they're helping businesses protect corporate secrets and customer information alike. Join us as we explore the cutting-edge world of data privacy and learn from Sean's experience in developer relations and marketing, where authenticity and building genuine relationships are key. Stay tuned. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Sean, welcome to the show. It's great to have you on the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. Fantastic. And where in the world are you? I live in the San Francisco Bay Area, although I've been on the road for the last four weeks and I actually am leaving tonight on a flight. So uh, the last month or so, it's hard to tell where exactly <laughs> I, I, what time zone I'm in and where I'm living. I know the drill. Uh, traveling can can definitely be a challenge. So I understand you were recently speaking at a conference. What what was that about? Yeah, so I was at the InfoBip Shift Conference, which is the their first time doing a U.S. based conference. So InfoBip is a is a, uh, a fairly large company that's based out of Croatia, and they actually run one of the largest developer conferences uh, in Eastern Europe in the world. And then this was their first foray into the US. Uh, so they ran a, you know, it was about a 500 person conference or so in Miami, uh, focused on developers. I was an invited speaker. So I, I went there and gave a talk uh, titled, uh, What if Privacy Had an API, which was all about sort of the challenges around why hasn't there been uh, an API built as an abstraction layer to something as complex as data privacy and dipping a little bit into some of the work that we've done at Skyflow. That's exciting. And we're going to dive deeper into that space for sure. I wanted to get a sense of your background. I, I was checking out your LinkedIn and you've got quite an impressive academic background. Talk a little bit about, about your path in academia. Yeah, I've done a, a lot of different things. Uh, so I, I sort of started my career somewhat as a, as a, you know, a software engineer on that path. And I worked as a software engineer all through school, but I, I actually ended up doing three different degrees in computer science over about a, a 10 year period. So I spent pretty much my entire twenties in university in some capacity. And I had wanted originally, I, I wanted to be a professor um, or, you know, an academic of some sort. And eventually after finishing my PhD, I went on to do a, a postdoc in bioinformatics at Stanford University. And that's what moved me from Canada to the US. And that was always a dream of mine to kind of do research or, or be part of the academic scene at one of these you know, hallmarks of academia, like a Stanford University or MIT or something like that. And when I finally had achieved that, 
in a lot of ways, it was um, even though there was some great things about it, and I got to work with some of the you know best people in the world in the, in the research community. I also started to recognize that maybe this was not the path that I ultimately wanted to do. And partway through my postdoc, I actually ended up starting a company with two other students at Stanford. And later that year, we had raised our initial seed round for the for the uh, company. And then I left academics and Stanford after a year to go and build that company full time. Mm, and that was Proven, right? Yes, that was a company called Proven. Yeah. And what was the the business model for Proven? Oh, we went through a lot of iterations uh, and, uh, you know, we did uh, pretty much everything wrong that you can do wrong as a startup founder, <laughs> but uh, I learned a ton. Uh, but ultimately what we ended up being uh, in terms of business model was, so uh, let me back up a little bit. So what hmm. we were originally set up to do was try to sort of democratize the way that blue collar work uh, or, you know, um, sort of hourly wage work works, uh, uh, labor uh, functions in the UN United States. So there's lots and lots of technology tools built for both the people doing the hiring as well as those who are seeking employment in sort of white collar, traditional university educated people. There's a lot less available for people who are working in the service industry or working maybe as a carpenter or a plumber. And mm. we wanted to be able to apply, um, you know, modernize that industry, applying, technology applying, you know, approaches like mobile. Um, originally it was like text messaging and so forth. And, and that eventually we came into to smartphones as that started to become a, a bigger, uh, a, a thing in a bigger way that people interacted with the world, but we wanted to be able to sort of transform that industry. And eventually we pivoted into something that was essentially a lightweight applicant tracking system for restaurants and hot, uh, hospitality service industry, trying to hire hourly wage workers. And then, uh, on the other side of the marketplace, providing tooling for the people trying to find those jobs to be able to apply for those jobs really easily, represent themselves well online, make sure that they you know, show up for the interviews and are able to be set up for success. And essentially, employers would pay us to post and host their jobs and syndicate that out to a variety of different job boards. Hmm. Great business model. And then, of course, that was acquired. Yes, it was eventually acquired after eight years uh, by a company called Upward, which is now subsequently been acquired by another company. What great experience though. So from academics into a starter founder role and now in the security and privacy space, what's happening at Skyflow? I mean, what, what's your role at Skyflow? So I was originally brought on at Skyflow to be the head of developer relations. So that was a role. Um, so prior to Skyflow and after my startup, I ended up joining Google and there I led developer relations and developer experience teams for four different API products, uh, not in the data privacy security space at all, but more in the actual business communication space. But um, Skyflow was a, uh, uh, you know, a company that I was really, really interested in. The CEO and founder of the company had been an investor in the company that I started. So we had known each other for a number of years and I was really impressed by the leadership team and the vision of, of the company. And ultimately what Skyflow is, is it's a, data privacy vault for customer PII. So I think a good like analogy for this is if you think about your own finances, say you have, you know, gold and jewelry and, you know, the money that you make from, from your job, typically we do not choose to store our finances within our house, you know, because essentially if we were stuffing our money under our mattress and keeping gold wherever in, in our house, then 
what would end up happening is we're taking on the responsibility of protecting it. And most of us don't have the resources, the expertise to protect that. And we'd make ourselves a big target. So instead, what we do is rely on you know, putting that stuff within a bank where these financial institutions are set up with the resources, the staffing, the know-how, the security to protect it. And they also have really sophisticated vaults where all this stuff lives and makes it very, very hard for anybody to get access to it. And instead of using the money directly, we usually use a proxy to that information in terms of like a credit card or a debit card. And then if the credit card gets compromised in some way, well, we cancel the credit card, but the actual money that's being stored within the vault within the financial institution is not necessarily impacted by that. And in the same way, Skyflow is essentially a data privacy vault for customer PII. So you, instead of thinking about you know your financial resources, which are perhaps your most precious resource besides your family or something like that, the most precious resource for many businesses is their customer data. And they want to make sure that it's really well protected. So they essentially move their customer data into these data privacy vault architectures, which are specially designed for sexually allowing you to isolate, protect, govern, and use that data outside of your existing application infrastructure. Talk a little bit about what's happening at Skyflow and what your role is. Yeah, absolutely. So um, so just to, to back up slightly, so after my uh, company, uh, after I was done with my company, essentially, I went and I moved to Google. So I, I worked at Google for a number of years. And there I was uh, I moved essentially from being at, at my original company at Proven. I was the CTO and co-founder of the company. And even though I was the technical co-founder of the company, because we were not ever like a you know rocket ship that had thousands of employees or anything like that, I had to learn how to do a lot of things that were initially outside of the scope of probably my core expertise, which was more on the technology side. So I learned a lot about business, marketing, sales, and so forth. So when I Joined Google, I actually joined uh, in uh, the developer experience and developer relations side of Google. So still engineering, but with a little bit more of a educational marketing uh, lens to it. So I was leading developer relations and developer experience for four different API products there. And not in the privacy and security space, but actually in the uh, business communication space. But I was really, um, uh, you know, essentially engaged and interested in joining Skyflow because of the vision of the company, um, the leadership team, the CEO and co-founder Anshu Sharma was actually an investor in the company proven that I had started years ago. So we had known each other for a long time. And when he approached me about the idea of joining, I was, you know, initially, I was very, very intrigued. And what they're setting out to be is essentially um, uh, develop or, or our tagline is, you know, what if privacy had an API? So it's this idea of, can we create essentially an abstraction layer for something as complicated as data privacy? And the way that we do that is we are a data privacy vault for customer PII. And I think a good way to think about that is if you think about your own, you know, the money that you earn at your job, or if you, you know, had gold or diamonds or something like that, then typically you would not store your, you know, the money that you earn at your job in your house. Because if you're stuffing that on your mattress, then essentially you're taking on the responsibility of protecting it. And most of us don't have the, you know, the resources, the knowledge, the core competency to put the right safeguards in place to actually protect it. And on top of that, we'd be making ourselves a big target to potential threats. Now, so what we end up doing is we, we typically store that money with a bank. And then the bank has the resources, the knowledge, and so forth to protect it. On top of that, they have very sophisticated vaults where they put all that money and financial resources. And then you use proxies for 
the value that you have in the bank in the forms of credit cards or debit cards to essentially access that information. And if the credit card gets compromised in some way, then well, you cancel the card, but the actual financial resources that you're storing within the vault are actually not, not impacted in some way. And essentially we are doing something similar, but for customer PII. So we provide this core concept of a data privacy vault, which is, you can think of it as essentially a, a way of treating customer data as something special outside of your existing system. And it's set up to isolate, protect, govern, and give you ways of actually managing and using your PII. So in the same way that, you know, the money that we have might be one of the most valuable assets that we have in our lives besides our family, customer data is one of the most valuable assets that a company has. And they want to make sure that not only are they meeting whatever the privacy regulations say that, that uh, they, they need to be able to do, but they also want to make sure that it's not compromised in any way. So they can leverage essentially this technology to do that. So I want to start by uh, looking at a definition of PII. Like uh, there are developers putting applications together. They're storing customer data. What is sensitive? What is PII? Yeah, so that is uh, probably a more complicated question than you even uh, <laughs> maybe intended. So PII stands for personally identifiable information. And it actually, the definition, uh, like the, the sort of like legal definition of PII, and I will preface by saying I am not a privacy lawyer uh, so, so take this, you know, with, with a grain of salt, I'm uh, an engineer that knows something about privacy and security, but, uh, the definition can vary depending on essentially the type of regulation that you're looking at, but the way I think about it, and I think this is the, the most sort of applicable for anybody in engineering spaces or any company founder is to think about not just PII, but essentially sensitive customer data. So what is sensitive customer data? This is data about your customers that you wouldn't want showing up on the front page of the New York Times because you had a data breach, essentially. So anything that is at that level of sensitivity that you wouldn't want exposed in some capacity because it would be embarrassing for your company and bad for your customers, then you want to essentially treat that as something different than regular application data and have a lot more safeguards and security in place. And ideally, mm. you're leveraging a technology like a data privacy vault to do that. So that's pretty wide reaching. It could be everything from customer names and addresses and purchase information. You would probably draw the line at like product information that is yours, bespoke information, right? Yes. So I think of it more as information that relates to the customer directly and or would allow you to identify the individual if you had enough access to that information, but uh, not essentially your application data, analytics data, you know, clicks on a web page, stuff about the products that you know, if you were, um, you know, some sort of retail uh, company or you sold some sort of product, you wouldn't store your product information within a data privacy vault, but you would store information about your customers, uh, account information, their credit card information. You know, if you were doing things like identity, then you might need to keep track of their social security numbers so that you can run things like KYC or their driver's license, you know, picture of their driver's license or something like that. That is, you know, essentially customer data that you'd want to protect. Mm -hmm. So how does it surface to the developer? Let's say I'm developing an app and I'm typically familiar with how to establish a connection to a database and I begin accepting data from a, from a form. Maybe it's a web form or a mobile form and, and I store that in my database. But if it's PII, I, I want to take a different approach and, and be more secure about it. How does that surface to the developer with Skyflow? Yeah, so that's a great question. So I mean, there's a few different ways that you could do this depending on sort of where you are, like how complex your infrastructure is and also what your needs are and the type of information that you're storing. But the ideal scenario is whenever you're dealing with 
sensitive customer data is that you're going to de-identify it as early in the life cycle as possible and then sort of re-identify it as late in the cycle as possible. So if you had a form where you're collecting information about a user and this is, you know, their name, their email address, their, you know, home address or any uh, their phone number or something like that, then ideally from your front end application where you're collecting that, instead of sending that through like an API gateway and then other downstream services eventually ending up in your database, you would leverage Skyflow's front end SDKs to send that data directly to your data privacy vault. And then what would happen is the vault would return essentially a reference in the form of a token back to your application front end. So this, you can think of this like a pointer essentially. So it's a stand-in for the original value, but it's de-identified information. So there's no mathematical connection between the input value, say someone's name and the resulting token. So even if someone gets the token, they can't reverse engineer it back to the original value, but you can use it essentially as this reference. And then you would pass the references downstream through your API gateway and your other downstream services. So those references would end up in your database and your data warehouse and anywhere else where you're storing it or potentially your log files or however else you're, you're storing that information. But that ends up effectively de-scoping all of your application infrastructure from touching any of this customer data. And then the only time that you would re-identify it is let's say someone logs into the application, they go to their account page and they want to be able to see, you know, their account information. Well, it's probably going to surface their name. It's probably going to surface, you know, other, you know, maybe their phone number or something like that, whatever other information they signed up with. Well, in that case, your application is still going to function exactly as it would as if you were handling the raw data. But in this case, you're handling tokens. So the tokens end up getting passed back to your front end. And then your front end would essentially make a front end SDK call to exchange the token for the original values, allowing you to resurface those. So you're re-identifying them as late in the in in the life cycle as possible, and in this case at render time. Mm. And I imagine using some form of TLS or you're encrypting the, the pathway as you're sending that data back and forth, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, any, yeah. Anytime you're talking about mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know uh, privacy and security, of course you want uh, encrypted at rest, encrypted during transit. And we actually in, uh, our data privacy vault, we pioneered a technology known as polymorphic encryption, which also mm -hmm. allows you to run fully encrypted operations as well. So you can run a variety of different, essentially like SQL statements directly against the vault, uh, against fully encrypted data. Um, and then there's other other sort of course features of the vault that allow you to run uh, compute even within the vault. So you could run custom code that runs within the secure environment of the vault and allow you to perform some sort of algorithmic operation against the PII without essentially exposing your systems to the uh, plain text values. Mm. Now, I know you didn't build this, so I may be throwing your curveball, but mm -hmm. what does the stack look like and and how was Skyflow built? So, yeah, so I can go into uh, a bit of detail there. So it took about two years to build the initial vault. So the first, the company was formed in 2019. So we're about four years old. And the first two years was really just R&D. So most of the company was engineering and product. We really have only had sort of go to market for the last 18 months or so. And the reason for that is, you know, it's not a move fast, break things type of product when you're talking about data privacy and security. And it's a big lift to build these, um, you know, the, essentially these architectures properly. So if you look at companies that have done something similar, so there's been a handful of companies like Google, Netflix, Apple, Shopify, 
and Capital One and so forth that had built similar architectures and ideas to the data privacy vault. But like Shopify, it took them about three years and almost 100 engineers to build their version of a vault. And that was just for analytics. So essentially, we took some inspiration from these different companies and tried to build that for everybody else and abstract it away in the form of SDKs and APIs. But where we began, of course, is with the secure data store, uh, the secure data storage or secure data layer. So how do you actually store this data and protect it? And we had to develop a number of different technologies uh, to do that, including the polymorphic encryption uh, approach that I spoke about, as well as different forms of tokenization. So a lot of people, a lot of developers might be uh, somewhat familiar with something called PCI tokenization, which is if you've ever used a uh, payment service provider like, like a Stripe or Braintree or mm -hmm. something like that, then in that case, you're never handling credit card data directly. Essentially, you're using their SDKs to embed some sort of form, which actually runs on Stripe's um, infrastructure. So it, it essentially removes your front end from PCI scope and the credit card data goes directly to Stripe and then Stripe returns some sort of token representation, which you then use and save within your application. And essentially that is a simple form of tokenization where you're essentially getting some sort of random string representation of that original data. And you could do all that kind of stuff with um, Skyflow as well, but we had to do that at a much more sophisticated level in order to support a variety of different workflows. So not only can you create sort of random tokenization that you can use as a representation for the original data, but you can create things like format preserving tokens. So a, an email could still look like an email or a phone number could still look like a phone number. And that way, if you anything in your downstream services expects things to be formatted in a certain way, you can still give it tokens that look the same, but are not the original values. And mm -hmm. we generated things like um, deterministic tokens. So these are essentially tokens where the same input will always produce the same output. Uh, so Sean Faulkner generates the same UUID every time the vault sees Sean Faulkner. And that allows you to then run analytical operations in your warehouse against the tokenized data because the, the warehouse doesn't need to see Sean Faulkner. It just needs to see essentially the same type of string uh, every time so that it can perform joins and counts and group buys mm -hmm. and so forth. So a lot of that technology was the sort of initial layer. And then we, on top of that, we had to build essentially a governance layer, auditing, uh, authentication authorization layers, and then build in uh, different deployment models for uh, different uh, infrastructure deployments, depending on you know what a what a customer needs, like single tenant, multi tenant, and so forth. And then build these workflow layers on top of that, which is something that was a, a fairly recent development in the last year, which is how do you perform essentially operations on data within the vault, like algorithmic operations or pipeline ingestions and ingress, egress in and outside of the vault. And then finally layer on an API and SDK that abstracts all that so stuff away so that as an application developer, I don't need to know how to build all that stuff or even need to know all the ins and outs of it. All I need to know is, okay, well, here's my, you know, REST API interface to send data into the vault and, you know, get the data back out. Mm. You know, even to this day, I run into customers who uh, describe for me a scenario where they, they just can't have data off premise. They, they need to have everything encapsulated. Is there a solution in the Skyflow portfolio for that? So you're talking about on-prem versus cloud? On-prem, yeah. Mm -hmm. We don't provide an on-prem solution today. Although if you were storing data on-prem, of course, and you're comfortable with the idea of having some of that data exist in the cloud, there's nothing stopping you from you know, having that data go into your Skyflow vault. But essentially we we are a cloud, we're, we're born in the cloud. We are a, a cloud-based solution. But of course, the, the way the deployment works is the, um, 
we essentially separate things from like a control plane and data plane. And the data plane is where only you have access. So it's, it's, it's your data. We essentially just manage the services on top of it. So we don't have access to the data. We're just managing those services on your behalf. And then you have to complete control of the data with through a secure link. Mm. So customers that are concerned about security and privacy, uh, they're naturally, they naturally scrutinize any partner they're going to get into business with. How do you overcome that as a new, a relatively new company? How do you overcome that issue of trust? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that is something that any startup that's trying to sell into, you know, bigger businesses, of course, is going to struggle with. Now, there are, of course, certain benchmarks that you have to hit as any business that's working in security and privacy. So, you know, we're PCI level one um, uh, uh, compliant, SOC 2 um, ISO 2000 or 2001. And, you know, the, and we've gone through all those various security audits. We also have done the AWS um, uh, FTR review, which is required for the marketplace where essentially AWS has their um, solution architects go through everything that you're doing from a infrastructure standpoint to make sure that you're meeting the best practices from a security perspective. So we've had all those third parties, of course, look at our systems and make sure that we're doing the right things that you'd be expecting of any business that's working with this kind of data. And uh, some of those, of course, are required to, to even handle the, uh, you know, things like uh, patient data or credit card information. Mm. Now, there's, of course, other things that help as well when you're looking at our, our company is the, um, you know, the, the, essentially the leadership team is a big factor. You know, our Anshu was a uh, former VP at Salesforce uh, for a long time. And before that, he worked at Oracle and has been a successful investor. So he's a known a known entity um, that's also well-connected and really understands, you know, SaaS and enterprise uh, uh, software. And then our, you know, chief uh, product officer is also former VP at Salesforce. So we have essentially from like a, uh, like a pedigree standpoint, people who have had leadership roles at data, comp- at, at data companies, security companies, and so forth. And our head of security and compliance also has over 50 patents in database encryption and security. So he's invented a lot of the modern techniques that are used to protect data today. Uh, he did that a lot of that work, you know, um, you know, 20 years ago and has the patents on those. So we have from a, essentially like a thought leadership uh, team team um, depth and expertise, uh, a lot of people that can essentially speak to uh, what we're doing from a security perspective. Hmm. So you talked about this evolution and it started with the vault, extended to an API. What's what's late breaking and, and what's in the future for Skyflow? Yeah, so we, uh, you know, of course, uh, like most of the world, uh, GPT is always on uh, everybody's mind these days. So we recently launched uh, some oh, something a, a new product line called uh, Skyflow GPT Privacy Vault. So it's essentially our vault offering for helping protect the insecure um, GPT workflows. So there's a lot of challenge. I mean, a lot of companies, of course, are very excited about everything that's going on in generative AI. Uh, GPT, mm-hmm. but there's also a lot of security and privacy concerns as well as people start to think about building their own generative AI systems. You know, one of the hard things about GPT-like systems is they're really designed for learning and remembering. They're not designed for forgetting. So once essentially sensitive data ends up in a GPT model, it's kind of there forever. There's no easy way to delete it. It's not like going and deleting a row from a database. It's it's, it's, it's sort of no way to kind of unlearn something within a GPT model. So how do you solve that problem? And essentially the best way to solve that problem today is to make sure that the information doesn't end up there in the first place. So with Skyflow, you can essentially protect 
all um, parts of essentially building a generative, uh, like a GPT-like system from training to inference to prompts. Um, and essentially we sit in between wherever that, you know, your, say your training data and your GPT model, we can, Skyflow can sit in between there. Essentially the information, the, the training data can go in the Skyflow. We will identify where the sensitive information exists, replace it essentially with de-identified data or fully redacted, whatever you need, and then give you clean data on the other end that you can do your model training with. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's similar from a prompt standpoint, someone essentially can take, you know, an internal document at a company, uh, like uh, I believe happened at Samsung, copy it, throw it at a G at GPT, and uh, and now you know GPT essentially has access to it. But Skyflow again can sit between essentially the prompt and the GPT, filtering out the sensitive data, mm. replacing it with uh, essentially deterministic tokens, so that you can actually have referential integrity, so that when the GPT response comes back, you can replace those tokens with the private information. So this allows you to not only protect PII, but also protect essentially corporate secrets. So you know, lots of companies have internal names for product lines that are you know in the works that they don't want leaked. Well, how do you protect that? And essentially, that's this is uh, a way to do that. Mm. Not something I've thought a lot about, but so there's there's uh protecting the use of and improving the use of, of LLMs and, and ChatGPT, there's leveraging the technology. Is Skyflow using AI in any way? So we're not, uh, so within the vault itself, uh, oh, so yes, uh, to, for, so for things like PII detection, there's elements of, of AI there as well. We're not currently using LLMs directly within the vault, although of course those, you know, that's such an evolving, fast-moving space. Those are things that we're looking into. We're also leveraging uh, GPT-type systems within Skyflow um, as essentially a way to uh, enhance our efficiency as a, as a company. Uh, so that there's some interesting things going on there. So one of my um, colleagues, uh, Manny Silva, our head of documentation, who I also worked with at Google, has built a, a bunch of internal applications that leverage um, sort of our own internal versions of GPT that we can train on uh, corporate information, corporate documents. And then we can, you know, go essentially from something like a PRD to generating a lot of, you know, things like documentation, readme files, uh, a blog post, PR release and so forth. And of course, that's not the end result. You got to do a lot of editing on that. But for most people, it's mm. easier to do editing than it is to essentially create something from a blank page. Yeah, for sure. So we talked a little bit about AI and uh, and that's kind of in the roadmap space, but um, are there key developments coming from Skyflow? What's on the roadmap? Yeah, so besides some of the work that we're doing around GPT, we're doing more, of course, around being able to uh, detect PII. Essentially, we want uh, we want to be able to support the full, full uh, uh, you know, workflow that somebody might be doing over uh, sensitive data. And we do a lot of work with um, a variety of different partners, companies like like AWS, of course, and, and Snowflake and beyond. Uh, so we're continuing to, to build uh, integrations into those different platforms so that we can uh, support whatever types of workflows you want to do there without essentially, uh, you know, compromising any privacy and security. And we're also continuing to enhance some of the things that I mentioned around being able to run your, and execute your own co code within the vault. There's always things around, you know, performance and scalability you, you need to be uh, addressing. And th those are big areas of investment as well. Hmm. 
So we're both in developer relations, both in marketing. Uh, I'm, I'm curious about um, your approach to marketing to developers. It's a tricky space and developers don't typically like to feel like they're being marketed to. What's your approach to that? Yeah, so I always, you know, people always talk about how developers don't like uh, marketing or they don't like being marketed to. But I honestly think that developers don't like bad marketing. And that's true of all mm -hmm. humans. All humans don't like bad marketing. Because <laughs> there's been, you know, plenty of marketing campaigns. Like I think the Twilio one of the Asher developers, like one of the most famous ones that is a really well executed marketing um, a campaign that I think developers, for the most part, probably really liked. And I think a lot of it comes down to authenticity, speaking the right language and understanding your audience. And that's true probably of any type of marketing. So mm. for me, I think I always, from a like developer marketing, developer relations standpoint, I think the core of developer relations is really about building relationships. That's why it's in there as such an important phrase within there. And sometimes we forget a little bit about that. But it's like, how do you build authentic relationships with people? And I think if you're focusing on that and and uh, you're going to be successful uh, either as an organization or as a, you know, an individual contributor. It's like, how do you essentially connect with people? How do I find people that are interested in this thing, have certain types of problems that, you know, I'm interested in helping solve or they're interested in solving and then connect with them in an authentic way. And then additionally, it's also about building relationships internally within the company and then building trust with your, you know, product and engineering counterparts, your other marketing counterparts, your sales leaders and so forth, and figuring out how can I take essentially my knowledge as well as the knowledge of what's going on in the community, the assets that are happening, the types of things that developers want and give that as a feedback cycle to help improve our product, to help improve our sales cycle. And that's also all about relationship building and, and building that trust there. And you have such an important um, place in a business if you do it right, where you're this cog essentially between those external developers and the internal teams. And you can be this conduit of information that's going back and forth. And that really just comes down to how do you, how do you build trust on both sides of that place? And that's really the, the, the foundation, I think. Yeah, I like that. And I mean, I think it begins with, with good product that is that developed with the developer in mind. And it sounds like you've done that at Skyflow. You've got you know, the API, you're, you're thinking about how developers are going to access this and leverage it to, to get the best use. And, uh, uh, that sounds like a really positive step. And then you're, you're doing things like this podcast, but what else is in the tool belt at developer relations at Skyflow? Yeah. So we do, you know, a fair number of things. I, one of our big challenges, I think as an organization, one of the reasons I was really excited to join is we are a new category of product. You know, most people don't know what a data privacy vault is. I, I imagine it's kind of similar to the early days of MongoDB when people didn't know what a document store is. And it's like, how do you essentially go and create momentum and not and and market knowledge around this concept so that people actually know the benefits of it and why they would want to use it? So a lot of my first year at Skyflow was focused on how do I sort of get to the tallest mountaintop and shout from the top of that mountain, like, hey, data privacy vault is a thing you should know about. And it wasn't necessarily like Skyflow, Skyflow, Skyflow. It was just this core concept. This is something that you should know about. And you know, I wrote an article early in my time at Skyflow that I um, had uh, published at Software Engineering Daily called Why Every Engineer Should Know What a Data Privacy Vault Is. And then you know, I think I, I wrote that in the second month I was at Skyflow and it was published probably in the third month. And then fast forward six months later, this IEEE article came out about the future of privacy engineering written by some leadership team at Infosys. And in that, they talk about how we're shifting from privacy by design 
to privacy by engineering. And essentially the best practices around privacy by engineering is to leverage this technology of a data privacy vault. And the reference they use for that um, article was the article I wrote, which is like, that is developer relations of full circle, sort of full circle. And if you look at our announcement for Skyflow GPT privacy vault, the author of the IEEE article uh, from Infosys is actually the person who's quoted in that press release. So it's, you know, it's so hard, I think, when you're in developer relations, a lot of times there's a lot of this pressure on like, how do you show value, the business value? You know, why are you here? Why are we paying you? And so forth. But that is why you, you're getting paid is essentially, can you do something that really speaks to people that is done in an authentic way? You're trying to teach them something. And then essentially you continue to invest in those types of things. And you're going to see that, that value that comes out at the other end. So I do a lot of writing. I do a lot of speaking as well as other people in the team to kind of just get the word out about this course concept. And, you know, I really firmly believe that in the next five to 10 years, uh, you know, I want to live in a world where everyone recognizes that something like a data privacy vault is one of the foundational sort of pieces of any architecture, just like you would have, mm -hmm. you know, an application database, a data warehouse and so forth. And, you know, I would love it if you're using Skyflow to do that. But even if you're not, this is something that just makes too much sense from a PII management standpoint, just like you use a secrets vault for managing your API keys and passwords. You should be, shouldn't be using essentially these, you know, pre-existing tools to try to manage something as complex as PII. Mm. So downstream, your company's going to do better because of your efforts, but how do you measure? Yeah, so that's a great, you know, I spent a lot of time in, in my days at Google on measurement, you know, when you're at a big company, big organization like that, so much, especially in a leadership position, a lot of your time is spent on like, how do I, you know, create visibility for my team? How do I justify our existence? How do I justify headcount and so forth? So it's a lot of essentially internal developer evangelism to some extent, going around and, and making sure that people understand like what you're doing. At Skyflow, you know, there were things that in the early days I really focused on metrics, but in a, I think in a lot of ways, um, not that metrics aren't important, but in a company where you're, you know, 100 people, Series B, um, there's nowhere to hide within an organization that size. So in a lot of ways, you can get distracted by trying to spend too much time justifying your existence on metrics versus just doing good work. Because if you do good work, people are going to know already because there's just nowhere to hide. So I think everybody understands like the impact that you're having. And of course, things like, you know, the IEEE article that's directly attributed back to me is, 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 you know, impactful from a business standpoint. But I think a lot of times the best things that you can do is again, like focusing on building those core relationships, making people understand your value and opportunistically looking for ways to help people. So if you create a demo that you did because you were interested in it, you wanted to open source it, you want to do a talk, well, that asset could also be a great sales enablement tool. So you don't want to essentially stop at the, the part of you know, putting it on GitHub, but follow that story through and figure out how can I have more impact in the business beyond just my individual contributions. And I think that is the key, not only to success in developer relations, but also to up-leveling in your career, whatever your, you know, your function is, is thinking about how do I scale beyond myself and looking for those opportunities to do that. I love that. And my leadership team, Peter Ulander and, and Matt AC and, and even up to, to Dave, it's been a message of find ways to get deeper impact. Like we can all have an impact on a, a wide number of, of areas, but we're really focusing on, especially in this economic client, in this economic climate, 
um, ways that we can have a much deeper impact on our core constituents, our, our, the developers? How can we really improve their lives? So what's your approach to that, that wide versus deep approach? Yeah, that's always a tricky thing, I think, is, um, and especially at any, especially like a, like a startup, it's uh, very easy to be doing a million things. Uh, you know, most, most startups, and I learned this as a founder myself, and I made lots of mistakes with this, is like you die of indigestion. You don't die of lack of good ideas, essentially. So it really comes down to like, you know, which of these thousands of ideas do I, you know, the, what are the five that I should actually focus on? Um, so I think a lot of that comes down to, you know, I, I think, you know, I use an OKR planning model. Uh, you know, I use, I like to go by quarters. I think in the startup, you could even go, you know, you might even be able to go shorter than that because things are moving so quickly. But one of the things I try to have our entire team do is, um, you know, actually, uh, at Google, when you do OKR planning, you're looking at like, this is everything that we're going to do. This is everything we're promising. And if we hit 70%, well, that was good. Uh, you know, no one's expected to hit hundred percent, but I think at a startup, uh, in my experience, anyway, you don't want to be that prescriptive because there's too much new information all the time. So what I try to have the team do is look at, uh, you know, what are sort of the big rocks that are most impactful that I need to focus on for the next, you know, three months while leaving enough space for essentially new information, as well as opportunistic things that could come up that you can try. And then always going back after those three month cycle and looking back at essentially running a retrospective of like, how impactful was this? Was this value add or, you know, what would I change? And essentially always asking yourself of, you know, what went well, what didn't go well, how can I improve? And then using that feedback cycle. And it's all about essentially speeding up the flywheel of learning. The faster you can have that flywheel of learning going, then the faster your learning cycles are. And, the, and essentially the, the more likely you are to be successful. Like I think a lot of times success is, is not necessarily about being so much better than, than, you know, other people or, you know, from a competitive standpoint, it's about survival essentially. Like, can you survive long enough to find the thing that actually is going to work? And uh, you see that all the time with startups where they're, you know, quote unquote, overnight success, but no one saw the eight years that they were crawling on their belly through you know, the gutters to get there and all the hard work that went into it. The only reason it feels like an overnight success is because no one cared until they were actually successful. I get that. Well, this has been a great conversation, Sean. I want to thank you for spending time with us. What else do folks need to know about Skyflow before we break? Uh, so if you want to learn more, definitely check us out at skyflow.com. I also host a podcast called Partially Redacted uh, at skyflow.com slash podcast. And you can also find that on you know your favorite podcast catcher. But uh, that um, podcast is not about Skyflow, but it's about the, the privacy and security space. So we cover a lot of security, privacy, engineering related topics. So if that's something interesting to you, you should definitely check it out. And I also am one of the co-hosts of Software Engineering Daily, which you can find at softwareengineeringdaily.com, which we essentially do deep dives into various engineering topics with engineering leaders within the industry. Great. I'll include links in the show notes to Skyflow and all of the things that we mentioned during the podcast. Sean, thanks again. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for joining us today for this insightful episode. Remember, thanks so much. Thanks for joining us today. And th thanks to Sean for joining us today. And thanks to you, the listeners. Remember to check the show notes for links to Skyflow's website, the partially redacted podcast. 
Remember to check the show notes for links to Skyflow's website and other resources we discussed today. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to the MongoDB podcast, leave us a review, and share it with your friends and colleagues. Thanks again for tuning in. Until next time, stay curious.